0: We're in John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19. John 12, verse 12 to 19. And now hear the word of the Lord. John writes, the next day, of course that's the day after Mary had anointed Jesus in Bethany. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... has gone after Him. Father, now we come into Your presence. We ask that You would prepare our hearts to see Jesus as He is presented here. That You would stir us up to a warm and lively faith, trusting in Him. That you would take away all the the many distractions, the things even that right now that are competing for our attention, and from the smallest child capable of understanding to the oldest adult, that we would see Jesus, would get a clearer view of Him and a clearer understanding of who He is and why He's come, and our hearts would be led to trust in Him more and to flee sin uh, more zealously, Lord, because we want more of the presence of Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, now through your word, make known the Father's Son that we may see and live. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, the time had come. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the final showdown. And this next week, as John narrates it, beginning here and ending at the resurrection, will change everything. That's why all four Gospels record this event that we call the triumphant entry of Jesus. It's that important. Because everything is now in place. Sides are are, are being formed. Opinions are being expressed about who is this man? Who is he? They want to know. Many in the crowd have concluded that he must be the king The Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, Israel has been seeking. And so they go out to meet Him on the road leading down from Bethany, proclaiming, as we heard, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But here's the question we need to ask. What kind of king is He as He comes to Jerusalem? Is He the kind the people demand? A conqueror to sweep away their enemies and give them an earthly kingdom? Or is He the king no one expected? Who came not to conquer and kill, but to suffer and die for our sins? And so let's let's begin there on this jubilant day of celebration and ask, Why? To begin with, why are these crowds here? We've noticed that they've come by and large because everyone wants a warhorse Messiah who will sweep away their enemies. Again, we see in verse 12 on that next day after the anointing the large crowd. Remember that crowd we talked about before? They've been in Jerusalem now uh, going through the purification ritual, gathering for the Passover. And what have they have been doing is they've stood around, they've been t- talking about Jesus, wondering, is He coming? What do you think? Will He be here? The large crowd, when they heard that Jesus was indeed coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's a large crowd, John says. Now that's no exaggeration. Jerusalem was a city of about 100,000 souls normally at this time, but records show that during Passover that number could swell to between 1 and 2 million people. At one point reaching even 2.7 million in 64 AD, just a few years after this, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. But even if that's an exaggeration, wow, this is a lot of people. And so as word gets out to this swelling crowd that Jesus just raised a guy from the dead two miles that way, and now He's headed this way, thousands pour into the streets and out the gates of Jerusalem to meet Jesus as He comes down the road from Bethany. And so you just have to picture these... Two large crowds coming together, converging on Jesus there just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Now, what are they doing? Why are they there? Well, they're there to proclaim Him to be the Messiah King they're looking for. We can see that in three things here. We see it first of all in the way they go out to meet Him. Uh, The word John uses for go out to meet is, is really specific It's a word that was used for the procession given to a conquering king as he entered the city to to claim his throne. Uh, What they're doing is they're giving him a parade, a victory parade. Imagine one of those great victory parades, ticker tape flowing in the breeze in New York City after World War II, and you'll get the idea. This is what they're doing. Further, we can see that in that they are waving these palm branches as they parade out to meet Him. Now, that's interesting. Uh, Palm branches weren't really part of the Jewish celebration of really wonderful props I have here. (laughs) Palm branches weren't really part of the celebration of Passover. So so where did this kind of thing come from? It, It didn't come from the Old Testament. There's nowhere uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that God said, wave palm branches as you celebrate Passover. And so, if it's not from the Old Testament, where did it come from? Well, believe it or not, it was actually a kind of a political statement that was drawn from their more recent history. Maybe you remember how the Jews had become a conquered people during the intertestamental period, that period between the close of the Old and the beginning of the New Testament, as recorded in the books of Maccabees. Uh, The armies of the Greek Syrian Empire, known as the Seleucids, had invaded Israel, toppled its government in 201 B.C., desecrated the temple, subjected its people... I and mean, it was a terrible time for the Jews. Until a man named Mattathias had enough. He raised an army and began a guerrilla war against the invaders. When he died, his son Judas the Hammer, you remember we've talked about him, Judas Maccabeus took over as commander of these forces. Judas pressed the battle against the invaders until in 164 BC he liberated the temple and the Jews still celebrate that event at Hanukkah just around the corner. And then a few years after this, his brother Simon managed to chase the Seleucid army out of Israel entirely. You say, great history lesson, Pastor. What does it have to do with these palm branches? Well, at the conclusion of both of these victories, the people celebrated by waving palm branches in the air. 2 uh, Maccabees chapter 10, verse 7. I think it's the first time I'm actually quoting Maccabees in a sermon here. 2 Maccabees 10, 7 says, Therefore, holding ivy-wreathed wands and branches and palm branches, uh, they were thankful to the one who helped to cleanse their own place. 1 Maccabees 13, 51 goes on to say that when the, when the conquering generals of the Jewish forces entered into Jerusalem, they came with praise and palm branches, with lyres and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy was crushed in Israel. And so why palm branches? Well, palm branches because national flags just weren't a thing yet in history, but national symbols were. And for these Jews, the palm branch had become a national symbol, something to be waved in celebration, both of the religious kind and the patriotic kind, with with celebration and joy, because it quickly became a symbol of their national pride and their hope for victory against all their enemies. So much so... That by the time of Christ, and especially shortly after the time of Christ, as the Jews continued to feel the sting of Roman oppression, they began to mint their own coins featuring the palm tree on the back as a symbol of Jewish nationalism and resistance to the Romans. And that was especially true after 67 AD when the Jews went into full-scale rebellion and the palm branches were just everywhere. And so they greet Jesus waving this symbol of nationalistic pride because they're making a statement. We see that further in what they cry out. Notice that they cry out to God to send a king who will deliver them from their enemies. Listen to it again, verse 13. And they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna! Literally means "save now." It's a Hebrew phrase. Save now. We're tired of waiting, Lord. We're we're ready to be liberated. Come now and save us. Now, where specifically did those words come from? Well, they're they're actually a quote from Psalm one eighteen. Psalm one eighteen is the last of the five. Hallel songs, praise songs, sung at Passover and other celebrations. So these, these are words the Jews all know by heart, just as you would know the National Anthem or God Bless America uh, or, or something like that. And so maybe it would be helpful if, if I read just a little bit of the context of these words from Psalm 118. Let me read Psalm 118, 19-26. And listen to how appropriate this is to the setting of Jesus entering Jerusalem. As the conqueror approaches the gates, it says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Another important verse that makes its way to the New Testament. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. That's the Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now what is that? Well, that's a cry of the heart longing for the King to arrive and to save us now. And spiritually, every Christian knows that cry. Don't you? Don't you know this cry, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I'm I'm dying. Lord, come save me. We understand that This is the cry of the broken soul. Asking the Lord to come and and step in and save me from sin and death and from the oppression of my own flesh to to come and conquer me and, and give me the grace that I need. And dear friend, you can cry that cry now. You can cry it tonight. You can cry that at any time. But, for the Jews, there on the street outside Jerusalem... They didn't understand it in that way. For them, this psalm was the cry for salvation of a military kind. Lord, send a conqueror to come destroy our enemies and and sweep away these opponents and put us on top. You can see it in the language that they're using here, in the words they actually add to the psalm. he who comes in the name of the Lord was a well-recognized title for the Messiah. So they got that part right. And then they quickly add, even the King of Israel. That wasn't in the psalm. Now they're doing interpretation. Even the King of Israel. Now, put yourself in their shoes and you can see what they're thinking. I mean, what is it they're asking for? What, are they, what do they hope Jesus will come and do for them? Very clearly, what they're looking for is they are looking for a warhorse Messiah a warrior king, to come defeat their national enemies. They want Jesus to lead a rebellion against the powers that be and give us victory here and now. They're looking for a political Messiah who will come and make Israel great again. A political powerhouse riding a war horse to vanquish their enemies and put things right here and now in our nation. But what Jesus does next makes it very, very clear that's not the kind of king He's come to be. He will not be their political Messiah. Because the second thing we see is that Jesus comes not as a warhorse Messiah. Jesus comes as a humble donkey rider Messiah to lay down His life and bring peace. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. R.C. Sproul rightly observes that something strange is taking place here in this moment. As the crowds are crying out for a conquering king to come to power and sweep away their enemies, Jesus finds a young donkey colt Sits on it and humbly trots the rest of the way into Jerusalem. And, and the question that we need to ask as we read this is why? Why is he doing this? I mean, why does Jesus ride the rest of the way? Was he tired? Well, no, Jesus wasn't tired. He walked with his disciples everywhere. 15, 20, 25 miles a day was nothing. Bethany's only two miles away. What we need to see here is. Jesus is making a statement. This was no accident. John tells us Jesus found a donkey, but we know from the other gospels that this was prearranged. Mark 11-12, through 12, very much like Matthew that was read earlier, says that when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples ahead and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it to Me. This was planned. Jesus had a purpose in mind. And so as he nears Jerusalem, in full view of the cheering crowds, these two disciples come out leading this little donkey, and he gets on it. Now what's the image here? D.A. Carson indicates that this would have had a chilling effect on those crowds, because this was not what they were looking for. Uh, the kind of king that they were looking for should have come charging in on a war horse army at his back, rallying the faithful to fight and die to secure their rights here and now. What they get instead is the kind of king who trots in humbly on a young donkey, this lowly beast of burden. And just to make sure we've got the right picture in our minds, think about this little donkey. Now here in the U.S., you may not be aware of this, so you can, you can benefit from this. Here in the U.S., we have big donkeys. We've, we've bred them that way on purpose. We like big things. Our donkeys are almost the size of a horse. Middle Eastern donkeys, not so much. They were little things. And, and this is a young one, so smaller even still. Jesus would likely have been able to straddle this little thing without even actually sitting down. And he'd have to lift his feet to the side, up in the air, in order for this thing to carry him at all. That's hardly the regal picture this crowd was looking for. R.C. Sproul comments on this. He says, this is not the picture of the Messiah that the people had in mind. They wanted someone to ride into town on a mighty steed and drive the Romans out, but... Jesus identified with God's Messiah. The Messiah who was to come in lowliness, meekness, and humility. Not surprisingly, the same people who cheered Him as He rode into Jerusalem screamed for His blood a few days later after He failed to give them what they wanted. This should be a lesson for all of us who come to Jesus with our agendas, making our demands of Him Only to become disappointed, angry, and sometimes bitter when he doesn't do things the way we want him to do them. Jesus is making a statement. What's his point? What does he want us to see? Well, first of all, let's be clear Jesus is not denying the fact that he is king. Yes, kings did indeed ride on donkeys in certain situations. A donkey was not only a symbol of humility, it was also a symbol of peace. Peace already won. No king rode a donkey to go out to war, but he would ride one when he came in peace. And so... In no way is Jesus denying that He is the King, the the Messiah, the, the Savior that we need. So, why does He do this? Well, the reason He flips the script here and doesn't mount the war horse, but the donkey, is to make sure that we understand what kind of Messiah He really is. He has not come to kill His enemies and establish an earthly kingdom of power. He has come to die for His enemies. And by the way, that's us. Romans 5, while we were still His enemies. He has come to die for His enemies and to establish a heavenly kingdom of peace that will never end. Dr. Richard Phillips in his commentary says Jesus did present Himself as Israel's true King but not as the King whom the people were seeking. This was the provocative point made by the donkey on which he rode. The horse-mounted king came bent on war. The donkey was ridden by a king who came with peace. Therefore, the point Jesus made was clear to all. His manner of entry could not have been more strongly a renouncement of the zealot's military idea of the Messiah. Jerusalem was offering Jesus the kingship, only a kind of kingship that Jesus pointedly rejected in the manner of His coming. Jesus is not the culture warrior many of us want. Because Jesus, here's the second thing, is proclaiming a completely different kind of kingdom. Matthew 21, verse 5, read earlier, Behold, your King is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a beast burden. Do you, remember, do you remember in Luke 9, after James and John want to call down fire on a group of Samaritans who opposed them, do you remember what Jesus said to them? Luke 9, 55 and 56, New American Standard puts it well. He says, He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I often think of that these days when I hear fellow Christians calling for the blood of our cultural enemies and sometimes of fellow believers. As if the way to win is to crush our enemies. And I I hear these things and I read them on Twitter and I want to say, I don't think you know what spirit you are of. We're ready to go to war against certain people and crush them personally on our way to victory because we perceive them as enemies, and and, and yes, culturally speaking, they may be, but we forget that our war, and yes, it is a war, is of a different kind. Ephesians 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. Not against fellow human beings, but against spiritual powers. And when we will lose sight of that, and become like these Jews, cheering Jesus as He enters Jerusalem, hoping that He'll rally our troops to trample our present earthly enemies. When we do that, ultimately we set ourselves up like them to betray Him. We forget that the real battle is not won by earthly means or political maneuvering or getting the right person into office. It's won by the grace in Christ. And don't misunderstand me. We ought to be concerned about the direction of this nation in which we now live. Yes, it's in a terrible state. The Bible is very clear that there is right and there is wrong and it tells us what is best for human flourishing and we ought to advocate for those things that are right and best to the best of our ability. Living in a democracy as we do, we have both the right and the responsibility to be involved, to campaign for righteousness, to use legitimate, godly means to press for what is right and good and best for all. But, the danger comes when we begin to think that righteousness indeed can be established by political means and strong-arm tactics. Righteousness can only come ultimately by the heart change brought by the gospel of the dying and risen Savior. And so the danger comes when we try to wed party politics or nationalistic pride to the gospel so that we think victory for our party is a victory for the kingdom of God or that we can find a Savior in the ballot box. This world is broken, and it will remain broken until Jesus comes. This nation is broken, and always has been. There never truly was that golden era we want to look back on. There were better times and worse times, but the sin of us as individuals wraps around everything we're a part of. So the Savior that we need to keep our eyes on is not the proud politician who makes His grand promises that He'll never keep, but the gentle, humble King who entered Jerusalem on a donkey riding to the cross that He's going to bear in our place. Phillips, again, says how easy it is for us Christians to get so caught up in the so-called culture war, the contest today between the policies promoting Christian values and those of pagan unbelief that we mount a war horse to ride against our sinful neighbors. But the Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey would have His followers likewise minister His truth in loving humility. As Jesus... As Jesus... As Christians face an increasingly hostile secular society, we must resist the temptation to wage war, but instead we must represent the Prince of Peace in His truth and love. As we interact with unbelieving neighbors, even including such flagrant culture war enemies as abortionists, homosexuals, and evolutionary proponents, we must reach out to them with the same loving desire for their salvation that drove Jesus into Jerusalem to take up the cross for His enemies. That's the Christ way. And it's hard. And it rubs up against our natural inclinations. But there He is, riding that donkey. Notice a third thing we see taking place here. Notice that in this, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Verse 15 is actually a paraphrase of Zechariah 9, verse 9. And so let me read both to you. First, the paraphrase in John. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's the paraphrase. Now let me read the original, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, did you notice the difference in the way the paraphrase of John begins and the original in Zechariah begins? Did you notice John has changed the beginning by substituting fear not in place of rejoice greatly. Now, actually, he's not actually changed it. What he's done is he's brought that fear not from somewhere else in scripture, from Isaiah 40, in what was common in the New Testament, a blended quote of Old Testament passages. And so, Isaiah 40, verse 9, that John taps into, let me just read part of that. Isaiah 40 verse 9 says, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now why does he start there? Why does he start with Isaiah's fear not? Instead of rejoice. I I think it's because... When facing a hostile culture as they were and as we are, we do fear. That's why we want a warhorse, Messiah to come destroy our enemies, because we are afraid. I see a lot of fear among Christians today. Fear about what's going to happen next week, about what's going to come down the pike legally, about what we're going to have to face in the future. We have a lot of fear. Maybe some of those fears, humanly speaking, are justified, but let's just be honest, we have a lot of fear. And, And so what God said to them in their fearful situation, I say to you, fear not. Stop fearing what might happen and look to your humble king. Trust Him that He knows what He's doing and that His way of coming and winning really is best. He says, fear not. And then quoting Isaiah, uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9. In fact, let me give you some of that context. Zechariah 9 uh, verse 9 to 11 gives us the context. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is He humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey? Then God speaks and says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. I'm not going to use those at all. I'm going to cut those off. I'm done with that. And the battle bow shall be cut off and He, speaking of the Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations... His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Fear not, he says, daughter of Zion. If you look throughout the Old Testament, daughter of Zion is what he calls his people when they're in trouble. Daughter of Zion is what he, he calls them when they need help, when they feel vulnerable. I have daughters. I understand this. Especially when they were young, but even to now, I have this sense of protectiveness. And, 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 and you, you, you tell me my daughter's in danger. I'm coming. And God here says, Daughter, fear not daughter, because this humble donkey rider really is king. And He's coming in a way you don't understand. He doesn't look very impressive mounted on that donkey. His way of salvation doesn't scratch that itch you have for earthly power, but hold tight. Keep your eyes on him because when he's done, he, when he's done, and the things that are about to happen don't make sense to you now, they will. And by the time he's finished, oh, oh you're going to be amazed. Because it's not going to be by power, as men count power. Verse 10 says he's going to cut that off. But by the blood of the covenant, verse 11. That blood spilled in our place that we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. By dying in our place for our sins, Jesus will gain a victory no army can ever defeat. That's the gospel. And yet something inside of us boils up and says, that doesn't make sense. No one wins by dying. We need numbers. We need votes. We need power and resistance. That's the only way to win. And then we see Jesus riding in on a donkey saying, come follow me. How do you respond to that? How do you you respond to the humility of this King? I see three responses here in verses 16 to 19. Let's hit these quickly. First of all, we see that the disciples, frankly, are confused about it. Verse 16 says, Standing there his disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, dead, and raised, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and that they had been done to Him. They didn't understand it didn't make any sense to them at the time. They, they too were seeking a war horse Messiah. I think we all are sometimes. This is not what they expected Jesus to do. They knew His unearthly They'd seen the kinds of things that He actually could do. Demons sent flying, wind and waves stopped with a word, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the dead raised. Surely it would be nothing for Him to raise an army and defeat the Romans. I mean, why else would we be coming to Jerusalem? It just didn't make sense. And it won't make sense to them until He dies and rises again. John said something similar on another occasion when they were confused. John 2 verse 20, and says, When therefore He was raised from the dead, then His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. And remember, think about it, remember this, John himself, the writer of this gospel, was one of those disciples standing there confused. John was standing there watching Jesus ride into Jerusalem on this little donkey thinking, what is up with this? I mean, where are the troops? Why aren't we going to war? It was only after Jesus died and rose again that any of this made sense to them. Christian, the same thing is true in your life. The same thing is true for us as a church living in this decadent culture. Our feeble minds imagine that for things to go well with us, I mean, forget this humility stuff, we need to go to war. We need to be assertive. We need to avoid the pain. Let others have the pain. We'll avoid the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and the death and the loss and the persecution. We don't want those things not realizing that Jesus is leading us into those very things. Because until we face the rejection and pain and suffering of the cross, we're not ready to embrace the resurrection and life forevermore with Him. And so I'm no prophet. (laughs) I can't tell you what's going to happen next week in this culture, next year or next decade. By the way, neither can anyone else. Just having a YouTube channel doesn't give you wisdom. Here's what I can tell you. Here's what I can tell you. There's Jesus riding that donkey. Humble. Let's follow Him and see where He leads. Let's trust Him that He he knows what He's doing and that where He leads ultimately is to resurrection and joy and life forever. The disciples were confused. Second, the crowds, because they heard the news of what Jesus did, that's why they came. Verse 17 and 18, the crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd coming out of Jerusalem went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. And so there are... There are two crowds here, you notice. One coming from Bethany with Jesus, who'd seen the resurrection and were talking about it. And those coming out of Jerusalem toward Jesus, who heard their testimony and were drawn to the hope that Jesus was bringing. That the emphasis in verse 17 uh, is on this fact that those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus just wouldn't shut up about it. Um, The first word in the Greek version is that word emarturai, where we get our word martyr, but it means to bear witness. And the point of putting it first is to emphasize it, because they just wouldn't quit talking about what they'd seen Jesus do, no matter how much the authorities were threatening them. They'd seen a resurrection, they'd seen the power of Christ, and they just wouldn't quit talking about it. And that's what drew the crowds. This gossiping of the gospel, this pointing others to Christ. Dear church, that's our mission. Amen. Right, Rob? Don't, don't quit talking about it. Don't, 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 don't stop. No matter what, we must keep talking about the King and what He's done and why He's come. And if it gets us in trouble, so be it. Because it is only in hearing the gospel that people will be drawn to Christ. I mean, you want to change this world? Preach the gospel. Proclaim this Christ. Whatever the consequence. And dear one, there will be consequences. Third, the authorities are confounded and angered by His power, which they are frankly helpless to stop. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the whole world has gone out after him. Did you ever notice? You've seen this maybe during this football season. When a team is losing really bad, they'll often begin to turn on each other. That's what's happening here. You see, they're determined to shut Jesus down. They're warning people to to report Him, to have nothing to do with Him. Yet, despite their best efforts, it looks now to them like the whole world has gone out to Him. And they're angry about it. But here's the irony. When they say, the whole world's gone after Him, (laughs) that is far truer than they could possibly realize. I think this is another one of those accidental prophecies. Because this is why Jesus came. This is what this whole thing is about. Just a little bit down the page in verse 32 that we'll hopefully get to next week. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of His coming crucifixion, I will draw all people, all nations, tribes, and tongues to Myself. This is why He came. So let me close with just one more quote here from Phillips. That I think sums this up really well. So, listen listen to this. Even their concluding remark, their final word on Jesus' dramatic entry into Jerusalem, is made to serve the glory of God. They complained the world has gone after him. How profoundly have these words come true? Jesus had not come to rescue a puny nation tucked in a corner of the world. Rather, He had come to rescue His people from their sins in every nation, tribe, and tongue throughout the globe. That His people still gather today in His name, like we're doing here, is proof of His success. For as Zechariah prophesied, Behold, your King is coming to you, and He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is not finished. And when He returns in the glory of His kingdom, when all who reject Him are judged, and all sin is put away in hell, then Jesus will look upon the whole world that He has saved. For the king is coming again. And the book of Revelation depicts him then as riding not a donkey, but a horse for war. There is a war horse coming. And when he has conquered and judged all that stands against him, then there will be peace forevermore. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy Of this book, Revelation 22, verse 7, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we stand now in that in between time, in that time when you have indeed conquered hell, death, and all sin and evil by your cross and empty tomb. And you now reign in heaven and all things. Are carried forward according to your perfect plan and purpose. But we're here in the midst of the mess, waiting, Lord, oh, let it be patiently for your return. Let the hearts of those here trust in you. Let us look to you not as a present day conqueror, but as a dying, rising Savior, calling us to humility, calling us indeed to suffering. O God, give us wisdom and how we work this out in our present time, looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, at His return. Give us grace to suffer. Give us grace to face loss in this world, but with joy in the world to come. We pray in the magnificent name of Your Son. Amen.